Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1098 of the Juicebox Podcast. Today, I'm introducing a brand new series called Cold Wind. The long title is Cold Wind Healthcare Whistleblowers. On today's show, we'll be speaking anonymously to a person we'll be calling Valerie. Valerie is an inpatient clinical pharmacist working with patients in the hospital. She has a five-year-old son who has type 1 diabetes, and she's here on the show today to give a behind-the-scenes look at what happens at her place of work. We're going to learn about Valerie's comfort level with taking her own son to the hospital she works at, and so much more. Each episode of Cold Wind will feature an anonymous guest whose voice has been changed to protect their identity. The voice-altering process we're using feels natural. You'll never know what they actually sound like. Just listen to how well the voice-altering works. My name is Beth, and my oldest child has type 1 diabetes diagnosed in October 2020. My name is Beth, and my oldest child has type 1 diabetes diagnosed in October 2020. When you place your first order for AG1 with my link, you'll get five free travel packs and a free year's supply of vitamin D. Drink ag1.com slash juicebox. This episode of the Juicebox podcast is sponsored by U.S. Med. USmed.com slash juicebox or call 888-721-1514. U.S. Med is where my daughter gets her diabetes supplies from, and you could too. Use the link or number to get your free benefit check and get started today with U.S. Med. My name is Valerie. I am inpatient clinical pharmacist, which means that I work in a hospital with patients who are in the hospital, as opposed to like a retail pharmacist who would work at, say, a CVS or Walgreens. I have been doing this for about 10 years now. Well, and I currently work at a pretty large hospital in an urban setting. So it's like an 800 plus bed hospital. It's part of a larger healthcare system with sister hospitals and other locations. Excellent. And you're, so you're a pharmacist by trade though? Yes. Okay. Went to undergrad, then how does all that work? How do you get that degree? Yeah. So pharmacy has changed a lot over the years. So you used to be able to practice with just an undergraduate degree, basically with like an extra two years. And then they made pharmacy a doctorate degree program. So most people have an undergraduate degree and then they go to four years of pharmacy school. I have my undergrad degree in biochemistry and then I attended pharmacy school and I actually did a joint degree program. So I have a master's in clinical research and an MBA as well as my doctor of pharmacy. Valerie, that is uh, a lot and thank you for explaining it. Do you have a connection to type 1 diabetes? Yes. And so uh, my son is five years old. He was diagnosed type one when he was one. Any other autoimmune in your family? No. None. Okay. So you have a five-year-old who's had type one diabetes for four years. Correct. Okay. Do you have any other kids? I do. I have a seven-year-old also. Seven-year-old as well. Okay. Now you're on the show today because I reached out into the world and said that I was looking for 
people working in hospitals, nurses, doctors, you know, pharmacists, anybody at all who would be willing to talk about why the treatment of diabetes in a hospital setting is the way it is. That's what got you to, to come on. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. And uh, my specific role in my health system now is unique and we are trying to improve our treatment of diabetes in the hospital. So we are implementing a lot of things within our healthcare system, which has included the role of the pharmacist being part of the diabetes management team inpatient as well as inpatient diabetes educators. That is something that our health system used to outsource to a third party without the pharmacist component. And now it's a more of an internal program and it's been going on for about a year now in our health system. So you've been doing it for a little while. So what did, what job did this give you? How are you helping in the process? So what my job entails now is every patient who is in our hospital, we can run a report and look at if they have had glycemic excursions. And so we sort of prioritize looking at those and look at the hypoglycemia first. Anyone who had a blood sugar less than 70 in the last 24 hours, then we try to look at all the patients who had a blood sugar over 300. And then we'll look at patients that have had at least two blood sugars over 180. And we do this on a continual basis. So it's always just looking back at the last 24 hours of patients in the hospital. Is that happening for every patient that's in the hospital or just people who are flagged? It is happening. The report is run for every patient in the hospital. Okay. Our team, as it exists currently, cannot address every patient that shows up on that report. So that's why we try to prioritize the way that we do with the extreme, like the hypoglycemia first and then the extreme hyperglycemia. If this is seen, if if hyper or hypos are seen, what happens then? Do you contact the physician? What do they do? Yeah, so as the pharmacist, there are certain things that we can do now within our scope. And that's sort of as we're expanding the program, there are more things that we can do. So we can modify their sliding scale or their nutritional insulin orders. We've kind of gone back and forth about modifying their basal regimens. Uh, with or without provider approval, uh, depending on which particular physician is covering the patients, <laughs> it determines a lot about what we will do um, automatically or if we want to ask that provider first. And then as far as the, the nurses who serve as the diabetes educators, they try to meet with all of the patients who they have a little bit different report. So they're looking at A1C mostly and trying to meet with all the patients that have the A1C greater than nine. So if there's someone being treated in the hospital and your system flags them as having higher blood sugars, you can make an adjustment to their dose for their meal, for example, and then the nurse that comes in the room with the actual insulin, they're not making that decision. It, it would be the pharmacy in your situation. Yes, a bedside nurse has no autonomy to make any decisions about the orders okay. in the computer. From the get-go, I bet that surprises a lot of people. Don't you imagine? Like, the, Wouldn't you think that people think, like, the nurse must be the one making the decision about this, or the doctor's making, like, there's a doctor outside the door somewhere, and he's making or she's making the decision. I think that people with children with type 1 that have dealt with a school nurse will have some kind of understanding of this, because that's a lot of the conflict that comes up with school nursing, right? It's like uh, the nurse is saying, well, I have to follow what's in the doctor's orders right here. And the parent is saying, like, well, they're sick, or well, this happened, like, I know that they need more insulin today. And the nurse is kind of saying, well, that's not what the orders say. 
So that is also how it works in the hospital. Your health system, or at least the hospital you're working in, what did they see that made this program come about? What do you think got it started? Well, uh, there's there's more kind of a push from the accrediting bodies, so Joint Commission and CMS, to say that we need better glycemic management in hospitals. So that was sort of the push behind it. So this is one initiative that our health system has chosen based on like kind of initiatives that were put out there saying like we need hospitals to do better at these things. This is one thing that our health system decided to focus on. Okay. Did you have anything to do with this or were you just happily surprised when you heard about it? No, it just happened to coincide with my son having recently been diagnosed with diabetes. I have always worked in an inpatient hospital setting. So I have not really as a, like, I don't know if as a healthcare professional, I would say, I don't really like like the ambulatory care setting as much. So diabetes was never a disease state that really interested me. It was always like, oh, diabetes is boring until my son was diagnosed. And then it's like, oh, you know, all of that changed for me. I have a completely different perspective on it. So then uh, this program happened to be implemented, you know, right after that. And that was why I, you know, got involved in it and applied. Uh, Prior to that, I was working on overnights. Can you maybe try to tell me something that maybe you haven't? thought of before, but I'm going to ask you to think about something. Prior to your son's diagnosis, if this new thing would have happened at your hospital, do you think you it would have been met by you with like, oh, I don't know, why are we doing this? Or this is more work? Like I, You see the value in it now because you know about type one from a personal perspective, but do you think you would have seen the value in it prior to that? No, not at all. How would it have struck you if, if it came that that came across your desk? It was 10 years ago, for example. You know, I think that we tend to think about things in that way as, okay, like this is an, an inpatient issue or an outpatient issue. This is like an acute care setting or an ambulatory care setting. And it's like diabetes, other than if a person is newly diagnosed or NDKA, is sort of like an ambulatory care disease state, like a chronic care, you know, something that you work with outpatient. And so that just has never been my thing that I've enjoyed. I've preferred working in a more acute care setting and patient setting. So that is primarily why I would have been like, oh, this isn't, you know, this is more applicable to outpatient. And even trying to recruit pharmacists to the position, that is the response of a lot of people. It's like, oh, this is really like an outpatient issue. Even though we know, we know in a critical care setting that having Good glycemic management can improve outcomes for patients in the ICU and things like that. That's kind of the extent of it, though, right? It's like, well, yeah, but we don't want to monitor all the like oral diabetes meds and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But is it fair to say that even though we know outcomes are better if blood sugars are tightly managed in a hospital setting, that that doesn't make it exactly a top of the line concern? I used to hate ordering my daughter's diabetes supplies. I never had a good experience, and it was frustrating. But it hasn't been that way for a while, actually for about three years now, because that's how long we've been using U.S. Med. usmed.com slash juicebox, or call 888-721-1514. U.S. Med is the number one distributor for Freestyle Libre Systems nationwide. They are the number one specialty distributor for Omnipod Dash, 
the number one fastest growing tandem distributor nationwide, the number one rated distributor in Dexcom customer satisfaction surveys. They have served over 1 million people with diabetes since 1996, and they always provide 90 days worth of supplies and fast and free shipping. U.S. Med carries everything from insulin pumps and diabetes testing supplies to the latest CGMs like the Libre 3 and Dexcom G7. They accept Medicare nationwide and over 800 private insurers. Find out why U.S. Med has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau at usmed.com slash juicebox, or just call them at 888-721-1514. Get started right now, and you'll be getting your supplies the same way we do. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, because it's it's not because it's not like an acute thing, right? I mean, hypoglycemia is, but if your sugar's sitting at two ten while you're in the hospital, but you're here because you just had a stroke and you can't eat food anymore because you have you know aphasia and dysphagia and you can't swallow, we're more worried about that, right, than the fact that your sugar's sitting at two ten mm-hmm. or that you just had a heart attack or you know whatever it is that you're here for that's always the priority. And then it's like, well, your blood sugar is a secondary kind of thing that we're looking at. Yeah. They focus on the thing that they think is going to kill you first. Correct. Yeah. By the way, uh, because I only knew the word, uh, ambulatory from Gray's anatomy, I actually, (laughs) I looked it up. It actually means able to walk about and not bedridden. That's what it means. So yeah, I guess that is what the word at face value means. But and then that makes sense why we call it like ambulatory care. So yeah, like ambulatory care setting is an outpatient setting. I think we kind of use those terms interchangeably in healthcare, outpatient, ambulatory care. Gotcha. But yeah, inpatient doesn't necessarily mean that you can't get out of bed, but right. but you are assigned to a hospital bed. So Oh, okay. That's interesting. That's such a word that you just hear all the time. And then when I looked at what it meant, I was like, that seems random <laughs> but but okay yeah well and then when you're talking about like patient care like can the patient ambulate like can they walk around it's used in that context too so earlier you said we may or may not adjust the doses it depends on the doctor and then you giggled why did you have <laughs> why did you have that reaction so yeah i mean in preparation for this i listened to you know i tried to get caught up on some of your podcasts more recently having to do with you know healthcare healthcare system healthcare providers and i think so i think that people who don't work in hospitals sometimes forget that like doctors are people too and they come with their own personalities and their own like inclinations and their own ways that they were trained and like just like any other place that you work, you know, there's some coworkers that you love and that you're you're easy to get along with and very collaborative. And then there's some coworkers that are like not team players and very much like this is the way I do it. And I mean their personalities come into play. So like physicians, you know, PAs, RNPs, any everybody is that way. We're all people at the end of the day. So some are more receptive to interventions from pharmacy or from, you know, other specialties, and some are less receptive to that. So you're saying that it's possible that some doctors might have an ego that doesn't allow them to take direction from a pharmacist. It's possible. I like that it makes you giggle every time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so working where you work, knowing what you know, 
having had the experience for four years of taking care of a human being with type 1 diabetes, what is your comfort level with your child going into a hospital system through the ER? Zero. I am not at all comfortable with my child going. So, I mean, so for example, when my son was diagnosed was during the height of COVID. He was diagnosed March 27th, 2020. We kind of realized that I knew he was sick, brought him to the pediatrician. And so our our pediatrician diagnosed him, which is different than a lot of people's stories. And it was a Friday afternoon. And most kids, he wasn't sick enough to be in full-blown DKA, but his sugar was high on the meter, you know, over 500. And my first thought was like, he cannot go to the hospital because they weren't allowing parents to come in when their kids were admitted. Like that had just happened that week where it was like, we parents, like, we don't know, you know, and my pediatrician is part of the same health system. And that was what I was kind of saying to her was like, if he has to go in the hospital, like, I can't be there with him. So this was even before like knowing anything about diabetes. It's just the hospital for someone who can't advocate for themselves can be a scary place. Yeah. And then when you add in a very specific disease state like diabetes, where it's very misunderstood it's very different. Like what diabetes means to one person can be vastly different, even if you are a healthcare professional, that it's like, yeah, you need someone there to advocate for you. So actually my son at diagnosis was never even admitted to the hospital. We managed him outpatient. The only time we have been in the hospital was where I work and and the ER. And it was because he was he was throwing up. I don't even check him for ketones at home, right? It's like, but if you if you're sick enough to where you can't keep fluids down, that's where I get worried. We need to go get you IV fluids. And they really weren't hearing me. Like they were worried about he had a little congestion, like, oh, let's get a chest x-ray. And I'm like, you know, I could have done that at the urgent care. Like I'm here because he's been throwing up. And they're like, well, his sugar's only, you know, at the time, I think when they first stuck him when we came in, it's like, oh, it's 130. And it's like, well, you glycemic DKA is a thing. You know, I'm worried, like, can we get, can we look at his bicarb? Like, can we look at his anion gap? And they just weren't receptive to hearing me even though I it's like I work here you know (laughs) in the meantime you know they have it's the children's ER so they have someone come in and it's like oh does he want a popsicle and I'm like well is it a sugar-free popsicle how many carbs are in it they're like oh I don't know and it's like well do you know that he's diabetic like has anyone like do you do this you know with all the patients so I'm starting to ask these questions and it's like how much awareness is there among all of you about like type one and what that means and like you know everyone keeps coming in and saying well his sugar is this whatever it was when he was first admitted it's like well we've been here for five hours and we have a CGM and like I've been giving him insulin during this time as his sugar's gone up like you know you're not supposed to do that in the hospital but that is what I'm going to do if my son is there, because otherwise you're, you're waiting. You're just sitting there and you can't do anything. Yeah. The, the process in the ER at this point takes forever. So my daughter has had she had some pain that we couldn't figure out at, while she was away at college. And she spent 12 hours in an ER twice in three days. And I'm going to ask you, Valerie, how many times was Arden's blood sugar checked? By the hospital staff in a 24-hour stay over three over three days, two different stays. We typically check blood sugar every six hours. So, so if I told you Arden's blood sugar was never checked while she was in the ER, would that surprise you? No. If I told you she was 19 in there with a roommate from college, obviously scared, 
in pain, put on morphine, and no one ever once asked her what her blood sugar was or checked to see what it was. That wouldn't surprise me. That's not surprising to you. No. Okay. So, aside from the idea of your, your child being diagnosed during COVID, you now have this experience of going in for vomiting. And even though you're in there saying, I'm a pharmacist, by the way, a a pretty well-credentialed pharmacist, not just like you didn't just get out and be like, I'm going to go push pills. You really put your ass into your education, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. And you work there. So you're standing in front of somebody going, hi, I work here. I'm a pharmacist. I'm worried about my kids' blood gases. I'm worried about this kind of stuff because I'm concerned about DKA. They don't even know that you could have DKA with a lower blood sugar. Today's episode is sponsored by AG1, and I drink AG1 every morning. I originally heard about AG1 on a different podcast. I had been using other drinks and not enjoying them, so I decided to try AG1 and loved it. I was using it every day when they approached me, and I was like, wait, you want to sponsor my podcast? I heard about this on another podcast. All right, cool. So here we are. When you use my link, drinkag1.com slash juicebox. Your first order will include a welcome kit, that's an AG1 shaker, scoop, and canister, the AG1 itself, five free travel packs, and a year's supply of vitamin D. I drink AG1 in the morning before I start my day. AG1 makes me feel like I'm giving my body the nutrients that it needs to get through a hard day of podcasting. I'm just kidding, it's not that hard to podcast, but still, I feel great when I drink AG1. AG1 is my foundational nutritional supplement It helps me start my day. It helps me to support my immune system. And I think you're going to enjoy it. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Drink AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to my link, drinkag1.com slash juicebox. That's drinkag1.com slash juicebox. Check it out. No. And it's like, I'm not even going to get into that argument with you right now. Just please, like, draw his blood because they're kind of like oh you know do we even want to get IV access and it's like yeah yes that's the whole reason why we're here right now like i'm not no don't send us for a chest x-ray like give him fluids first and then you can do whatever else workup you want Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean me advocating for that it still took several hours and going to do the chest x-ray first before anybody did what i was even there to do is there any validity to me saying with the complaints you came in the door with, they know they can do a chest x-ray and bill for it and insurance won't be upset. So it's a thing they do to make money because you're there now. So no. So I think that a lot of people have that concept of, it was interesting because, and so let me answer your question and then I'll say that, that the care is directed toward, you know, what can be billed for. That that comes into play in, in a lot larger scope than the individual like healthcare provider standing in front of you. We don't care about that. Like as the clinician trying to help you as a patient, like I am not ever thinking about billing because that's, I work for a large healthcare system. That's their job to figure that stuff out. Now they might implement policies or things that I have to abide by that correlate back to billing, but it doesn't influence how I'm like directing my care right now with you as a patient. Okay. So the clinician's not thinking, Hey, cha-ching chest X-ray because they said this, but the policy could be set up so that 
even in a situation where you don't need a chest X-ray, if you present a certain way, we're definitely going to do it anyway. Yes. And I, I would say even more so than billing, I think what drives maybe unnecessary testing is a concern about the liability if you didn't do it. Yeah, that's fascinating because Arden presented with, initially she presented with appendicitis. It was a pretty classic presentation. And they gave her a CAT scan. And then they came back hours later and said, your appendix is fine. But we see cysts all over your ovary. And we have to go do a, another test now to see if they're twisted because they could require surgery. Like, so this is what 19-year-old Arden was told by herself in a hospital 700 miles away from my house with just a roommate sitting with her who, by the way, had never had a medical issue and had literally never been in a hospital before. Try to imagine I'm managing Arden's blood sugar remotely through a roommate because Arden's high is on morphine. Right. So we're doing all that. And, you know, they said, okay, we're taking you back for an ultrasound now. She gets on the phone with me. She's FaceTime. She's clearly scared. She's loaded on the morphine. Arden's not a, a drinker or a drug user. So the morphine hit her really hard. And she's like, dad, like, I have to go get a thing because if these cysts are twisted, then I, they might burst and I might need surgery. And I'm like, okay, well, go get the test and then call me when you get back from the test. So she calls me back a couple of hours later. The doctor's here. He's going to give me the results from the um, ultrasound. And he literally gets on Arden's phone, puts a smile on his face and goes, hi. And I'm like, is she okay? She doesn't have any cysts on her ovary. And I went, what? You're the guy that four hours ago said that you took a CAT scan and saw cysts all over her ovary. And he goes, CAT scan's not a good way to tell if there's cysts on an ovary. <sighs> I said, but you're the one who said that based on the CAT scan, she needed this other test because this was a definite problem. It was clearly there. And now we just have to make sure that she's not in an, an emergent situation. And now you're telling me, oopsie. And he's like, yeah, good news. She doesn't have those cysts. Is it good news? You're the only one who presented the bad news. I said, I yeah. said, oh, okay, what's next? He goes, we're going to send her home. I go, Arden, are you still in pain? Yes. I'm like, you're just going to send her home? Well, she doesn't have an appendix. And I was like, could it be something else? He goes, well, we're going to have her follow up with her um, OB. I said, based on what? No answer. And then he treated her after 12 hours and let her go. So she spent the entire next day in a, a bad situation at like not feeling well, was not getting better. There's, she had this low abdominal pain that had stabbing. The stabbing eventually went up into her, um, uh, what would you call it? Like kind of the center of your stomach. Your, why, why is this basic word escaping me? Uh, help me. The bottom of my rib cage in the middle. I don't know what's an anatomical word for that. Okay. All right. But right about there. But, um, Sternum? Yes. Right about, thank you. Right about there. And then the day goes on, she's able to eat, and then she's like, you know, maybe it's going to get better. And then all of a sudden, around midnight, she's texting me, Dad, the stabbing's in my chest. It's going through the left side of my chest into my shoulder. Yeah, that's scary. Right? And so now you, you do a little more looking, it points the gallbladder. Makes sense, right? They didn't check her gallbladder mm -hmm. when she was there last time. I sent her back to the ER at 2 o'clock in the morning. And then I get on a plane and arrive where she is at 10 a.m. When I get there at 10 a.m., they've done nothing for her except put her on more morphine. They have not checked her blood sugar in the now eight hours that she's been there. 
And as I walk in the door, there is a burly man standing over her in a raised voice demanding that she leave because she's been, he told her, we streeted you, you have to go. Her roommate's crying. Arden, who does not cry about anything, has puddles of tears in her clavicle. And she is telling him, I am not leaving here until you tell me what's wrong with me. And you have to admit me if you can't figure it out in the ER. That's the sentence I gave her before I got on the airplane. Yeah. If if it Mm -hmm. wasn't for that sentence, he would have kicked her back out again without ever testing her gallbladder, which, by the way, it didn't end up being. But literally, when I walked in, a jacked guy in his 50s was yelling at my 19-year-old daughter to get up and leave the, the emergency room. And again, he had never touched her, checked her blood sugar, didn't check her for anything. She had had any testing. They ran some blood work, the same blood work they ran 24 hours earlier. In that same room, there were four other sick people cordoned off into corners. And I, Arden said, that woman's been vomiting for six hours and no one has helped her. And then she pointed to the other lady and said, wait till you hear how they talk to her. And I stood there for a little bit. I was able to strong arm them into checking Arden's gallbladder with an, uh, a proper test. And while I was there, I watched a doctor walk in to this woman who had MS and um, no, no, excuse me, cystic fibrosis. And he walks in, he goes, hey, so cystic fibrosis, tough call. I, I was like, what, what just happened? Did he just look at her and go, wow, cystic fibrosis, tough roll of the dice, honey, because that's what he did. I looked over and she had a look on her face like, uh, yeah, it's a terrible thing that has happened to me. Like, this is your bedside manner right here. It was fascinating. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go back and tell you Arden would have been better off laying in her bed and hoping it went away than what ended up happening to her at that hospital. Fascinating. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, that is a very, so, and that is a very, nothing that you just said about that surprises me, unfortunately, I guess, because I, I work in health. So it's hard for me to see the, so, you know, I read a lot of this stuff on the, on the juice box group and Mm -hmm. see, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm always, you know, people are rightfully so because they have a different expectation of what's going to happen when you show up to the ER, like, very offended and surprised and i'm usually like yeah that doesn't surprise me and it some of it goes back to what i was saying as far as like inpatient versus outpatient like do you like to work in an acute care setting or do you like to work in an ambulatory care setting so if somebody with good bedside manner who likes talking to their patients and is very sensitive they are going to likely want to work in an ambulatory care setting like as a primary care provider or a pediatrician the type of people who like the environment of an emergency room are not the type of people that like take your feelings as a patient into consideration mm-hmm. because you can't because your career is spent dealing with traumas and you know the worst possible things that have happened to people they you know roll into the ER And that's what you don't see when you're in the ER waiting room because you're seeing the people that physically got themselves there. You don't see the ambulance bay and all of the like five gunshot wounds and car accidents and everything coming into the back of the ER through the ambulance. And so you're thinking like, well, there's five people here, but it's like, no, they just brought 20 people in, you know. What's the explanation for not doing a gallbladder test in eight hours with classic gallbladder symptoms? 
that, I mean, that, that would be the only thing is that you triage, you triage your patient, like ERs work through a triage system. And it's like every time someone more urgent comes in, you just that drop person back down gets again. bumped ahead of you. Yeah. So they were literally trying to make her leave without doing the test. I basically had to bring New Jersey to the, to where she was to the South which straightened everybody up pretty quickly and then got me a physician to speak to who assessed her and said, yeah, it's very appropriate for us to test for gallbladder. I'm not sure why that hasn't happened. We'll do it right now. Eight hours later. But the other guy, the other person was trying to kick her out. Someone telling her to to leave when she's there for that time. But that, unfortunately, I mean, that is whatever individual made that decision, right? That was like, I just need to wait clear out this ER. I'm tired of this person asking me. And they're like, oh, I'm going to bully them into leaving instead of like staying here and advocating for themselves. That's not necessarily a system thing. I mean, that's that in, that individual deciding yeah. to deal with it that way. But I'm completely convinced that what happened was, is he needed to move somebody out of that building and she was young and he thought he could lean on her a little bit and she'd just go. That's what yeah. I think. Except I well, she's my kid, and I armed her with the right words before I got on the airplane. Yeah, you did. Yeah. So, um, but who would know that? Like, what regular, you know what, it always, always, here's what scares me. People on the Facebook group, you know, people get ketones, right? They get sick, they come on, they're like, I don't know what to do here. Hey, my ketones are really high. This is my blood sugar. I'm not sure what to do. And a flood of people go to the hospital, go to the ER, go to the ER. And there's part of me, it's like, oh, I, I don't want to say something that puts you in a bad way. Like, you know, I mean, if you need an ER, you need an ER. But have you tried drinking a lot of water and giving yourself some more insulin? Like, is it maybe a bent cannula? Did you like, you know, have you been sick? Do you think you can get this down on your own? Because you're going to get to that ER. And then all the stuff that we've talked about in the last half an hour is all going to exist. Maybe. And that's the thing I don't, it's a coin flip. Like, am I going to show up and find a nurse who understands DKA or am I not? And then if I don't. More more than likely not. (laughs) More more than likely not. So, all right. But you also see people who are admitted, correct? Like you're, yes. yes. So I only, I only, we only look at the patients that are admitted. So I'm going to move away from this ER idea and talk about somebody who's admitted for kind of like long-term care, which could mean a couple of days to longer, I imagine. I'm in there with type two. They're feeding me. I've seen the type two diet at some pretty big hospitals. And it's fascinating how many carbs and crappy food are, are in it. Correct. It's not even, it's not a type two diet. It's just, you don't get to pick off as many portions of the menu. They only give you one dessert. But they'll still give so you what we do apple is juice. we put people on a carb controlled diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is a standard, and it's forty five grams for women, sixty grams for men. But on that list is grapefruit juice, apple juice, stuff like that, stuff that's going to drive your blood sugar up in a split second. Right. Yeah. The glycemic index of those foods is not taken into consideration at all. We actually go back and forth about whether patients can even, you know, we're kind of told. So it's, you know, the nutrition services is a whole other department kind of of the hospital and like whether or not patients are allowed to order more than their carb control. Because it's like, OK, if I'm assuming this person is eating 60 grams of carbs with each meal when I'm dosing their insulin, but they're not because maybe a relative is bringing them food. 
that's one thing, but it, they can actually order more than what their diet should be. And, you know, it, it, trying to like figure that out and work with these other departments. And like, you know, we get information from one person versus another person has been a challenge that we, that's one of the biggest challenges we've found with our program as it is currently is, is the diet. And then of course, as a type one parent, I'm like, Oh, you know, and a lot of people, I mean, you don't, if you're insulin dependent, the type two diet is meaningless kind of at that point. I mean, like, we're not trying to control you through your diet anymore. Like you need insulin and we, but, but we do need to be able to dose that insulin with some concept of what you're eating at each meal. Mm -hmm. So the diet is really, is really tricky. (laughs) No, I mean, that seems, you just said something that didn't, it never occurred to me that people would just bring in outside food, of course. Right. I'm not saying that the patient's in certain settings and situations are not culpable in some of the problems they're having. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm not saying that the people working in in hospitals are are ill-intended. I don't think that either. I think that what you're describing is a system that is basically not set up to understand or control blood sugar. No. Yeah. The understanding is just not there. No, the understanding 100% is not there. So the whole the whole thing about type 1 versus type 2, I have tried very hard in this role to like get rid of those labels and just refer to patients as insulin-dependent or non-insulin-dependent. That's a lot more useful way to describe someone's diabetes. If they are insulin-dependent, they need basal insulin every day. They've got to have some insulin on board. If they are diabetic, they may or may not need basal insulin to avoid going into DKA. I mean, their sugars could be high and uncontrolled, but they're not going to become acidotic, you know? Mm-hmm. So A, the terminology and and talking to other, like talking to the nurses and talking to other providers and using that terminology, I find brings a lot of clarity to it. So if we could get rid of the type one, type two, that would be very helpful. Yeah, And then also just the idea of of yeah, like what what is this patient doing on their own, like the autonomy of the patient? So you have like this some patients that are doing, you know, all of like the podcast listeners like doing their best to really like get a handle on their management. And then you have patients that just lie to you. And it's like, yeah, I take 80 units of love mirror twice a day. And then we give them 80 units and their sugar's 20. And it's like, no, you don't. So, but, but they don't know, they think that they will be in trouble, I guess, or like, you know, they, they say that they're doing it, which is what they've been saying to their doctor outpatient, um, which is why they're on that huge dose. But it's like, they don't understand the ramifications of saying that they're compliant. And then we give them that. And Mm -hmm. it's like, no, we don't find out until we give it to you that you don't really take that at home. Yeah. Is it possible that there are maybe two distinct I don't know, societies in diabetes, people who are steadfastly trying to understand, trying to pull their education together and and to do a, you know, a better job. And that there are a group of people who have maybe just sort of, for whatever number of reasons, bad direction, bad, you know, education, um, intellect, uh, not being desirous of caring, whatever, whatever. They're just not, they, they have A1Cs that are in the 10s, 11s, 12s, and that hospital employees see sick people more frequently than well people. So they're accustomed to seeing diabetics who are higher A1Cs, higher variability, don't have as much idea about how to handle themselves. 
is and then you come in there with your kid because he got a little stomach flu or whatever, and you actually know how to keep his A1C. Where's your kid's A1C? 6.8 on our loss. Yeah. So you know how to keep an A1C in the sixes. You have a better um, understanding coupled with expectations, and that's why the hospital system looks roughshod to you and to me. But to most people, they probably don't even care or think about it when they're in there. Is that fair? Oh, 100%. I mean, that's so that's kind of the difficulty that I was listening to your podcast like leading up to this. Some of the more recent ones you had one with Jenny where you kind of went over like the things that people were saying that like healthcare providers had ever said to them mm-hmm. that was very offensive. And there, like, there was one where the mom was like, oh, the kid's sugar's 400. And the, they said to them, well, it's okay as long as you get it down. There is. A re- it's not like, oh, that was stupid advice because, and that was kind of the response, right? That's all the parents' response is like, that's so dumb. It's not okay to be 407. Yes and no, right? I mean, it, it is oh, it, it is what it is. You're 407. And you talked about that. Like, you know, you just have to work with what you have, get it down. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're coming from the perspective of like, it's okay. You don't have to freak out and go to the hospital just because you hit 407. You can, as long as it comes down, it will be okay. Right. And the that's pr- a different conversation than like, is it okay to be 407 every day? Exactly. Yeah. And so what we're looking at in an acute care setting is like, yeah, are you going to immediately die from this? And most things diabetes related, as long as it's not hypoglycemia, no one's going to immediately die from it. Yeah. And so you have these different levels of education. I mean, you're taught as a healthcare provider that everything should be communicated to patients at no higher than an eighth grade literacy level. Where I work at a large hospital in an urban setting, the majority of our patients don't, they're indigent care, meaning they don't have private insurance, they don't have government insurance, they are not insured at all, they're typically, you know, homeless, a lot of mental health issues, substance abuse issues, so the idea that you could even provide education or that the patient's going to do anything that you you say they should do i mean they don't even have somewhere to sleep much less like a way to get to the pharmacy to pick up their insulin and so we have you know these frequent flyers where it's like especially people who are type one that are insulin dependent um that have all these psychosocial barriers to being able to manage their disease state and that's the majority of the patients that we see Mm -hmm. so it's a completely different perspective than like the outpatient endo who's seeing, you know, you. So, yes. And so what you're telling me, I feel like this is what you're saying to me. You're saying, look, there are a lot of people who have a lot of things trying to kill them. And they come to a hospital and their blood sugar is not nearly on the top of our list about what we need to do for them. Even when they're admitted, you're still trying to get them through this thing that's happening. And because that's overwhelmingly what happens in a hospital setting, that kind of, I don't know, rinses through the staff. And so when someone comes in there who's like, hey, I've had type 1 diabetes for 40 years. My A1C is five and a half. I know what I'm doing. That's completely foreign to people. No, that's where you get the comments like, are you sure you have diabetes? Oh. Like, (laughs) that's where that comes from. Because... It's you never see someone with diabetes. Like you're taught, like 
you have a very basic understanding of diabetes and it's all taught from a diagnosis perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So like your concept of diabetes is someone's A1C is higher than seven. And it's like, you come in with a 5.5, they're like, are you sure you have diabetes? And it's like, duh, you know, we know like, yeah, I'm insulin dependent, like, but you know, if all you see is type two diabetics, then that that's not diabetic, you it seems know? It's insane that somebody would even have an A1C in the fives and be using the word diabetes. Right. Yeah. That's that's foreign to help. I mean, and that's what people say. Well, aren't you a nurse? Well, aren't you a nurse? And it's like, yeah, but that this is a nurse that has been working for 20 years now in a huge hospital where all of her patients are type two. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't see type ones unless she's maybe on like a, a med search for like saw someone after in PACU or something or like the type one that because if you have a, a, A1C in the fives, you're not going into DKA all the time. So you're not in the hospital. Yeah. It feels like what you're saying, seriously interesting, right? That it's commonly known that people who are uh, law enforcement for over there's this scale that they go up as the longer they're in law enforcement. And by the time they get, I think it's to a decade, if I remember correctly, their ability to trust people, even people that they're not intersecting at their work, it gets lower and lower and lower because that's the experience they're having all day long because they are seeing criminals mostly. And then they run into a nice person and they're like, I don't know, like, you know, are you going to shoot me? Are, are you going to like flip out and bite me? Are you going to do this kind of thing? Because that's what gets, that's how they're colored as, as the time goes on. I, I was pulled over once. I want you to try to picture this. I'm a young man in my twenties, maybe my late mid to late twenties. I'm driving, I think at the time, a Volkswagen Passat. I mean, it's a lady's car. I'm wearing a tie and I'm going to my job. I get pulled over speeding to work because I'm late. And I watch the police officer in my, I just want to be clear with you, Lily White Town, where nothing happens ever, come down my side of my car, one hand on the car, one hand on an unbuckled gun to come get my driver's license from me. And I'm looking in the rearview mirror going, what is happening here? And no lie, when that person turns the corner, it's an older police officer. Somebody who's been at it for 20 years, who doesn't want this day to be the day that they get, they get it. And meanwhile, nothing they're looking at indicates that I'm going to jump out with my GAC and start popping off. Do you you see what I'm saying? And so like, but I understood, I understood what they were doing because I have a friend who's a cop. But if it was just me, I'd be like, wait, I'm me. Like, I'm I'm just, I'm going to work at a credit union right now. Like, <laughs> I'm the least. You fun. know, that is, yeah. that is so interesting because that happened to me also when I was in undergrad. And I mean, my car was maybe a little more sketch because I had a lot of stickers on it. You know, I'm like a college student, <laughs> um, but I'm still, you know, like a young white female. I wouldn't think I would look like a threat. And I realized when he pulled me over, I'd left my wallet in like the way back. It was like a Ford Explorer. So it was in the very back. And so I just started to open the door once I realized, and he pulled his gun on me. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like, and it's, but it's, yeah, it's like, oh, you thought I was going to like do, you know, like, okay, I see that. But I was the one, of course, like scared. It's like, oh my God. And he's like, ma'am, stay in your vehicle. Like, oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. Ma'am, I'm 20. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, the worst thing I've done is not told my parents where I was last night. But so taking that idea that you can be in a high pressure situation over and over again, where you see a specific 
scenario over and over again. And then suddenly someone comes into it who doesn't fit it. You're not going to get the the service that you expect in that hospital. And so the answer really has to be, you need to understand your diabetes care backwards and forwards, go in there and immediately begin to explain it in a way that lets the people listening know, I know this better than you do. Here's what we're going to do. This is what's going to work for us. But you tried that and you couldn't even get them to listen. So what luck am I going to have? I'm not a pharmacist, well, but I don't they, work at the hospital. They did. They, they did listen eventually. It's just, you know, don't be, A, don't be surprised at how long it takes you to get your point across. B, don't be surprised at how many people you have to keep repeating that to because the healthcare is so specialized now. You are going to have so many different people in and out. And it's like, you know, the nurse assistant or the patient care technician, they don't necessarily need to understand your diabetes, but that's typically the person in the hospital who's doing the blood finger check, the, Mm -hmm. you know, your checks, your finger sticks. So if you have just drank an apple juice, and this is what we're assuming is like a preprandial blood glucose. Like you should probably tell that patient care technician, I just drank an apple juice, but like they don't necessarily know what that means. Is it my real goal to separate myself from what they normally see? Like to let them know if, if, if I am in fact a person who understands this on a greater level to like get out in front of it and go, look, I recognize what you normally see in this setting, but this isn't us. And, and, and here are some examples of why that is like, is it is just as easy as saying I have a glucose monitor and a pump and I know what I'm doing. My A1C is in the four in the fives. It's in the sixes. Like, don't worry. We can help. Like, I'll help you with this. I know how to bolus for food. Like we want to keep our pump on while we're here. Like that kind of stuff. And you, and you need to lead with that. And that's like, it was interesting because you had a conversation with that same with Jenny about the things. And she was talking about her prescription for her test strip. And the pharmacy technician saying like, oh, why would you need like eight to 10 a day? Mm-hmm. And I, I did that. I did that as an intern when I was in pharmacy school and I was an intern in a retail setting. And I had a woman come in who was newly diagnosed type two starting on insulin. And the intro, because so what, what we see is, oh, look, here's a prescription for 10 test strips a day. Medicare doesn't pay for that. I can tell you right now, it's not going to go through your insurance. And it's going to be a problem because you're not going to want to pay cash for it. We need a prior authorization from your doctor. It's like a whole, that sets off a whole train of events. And it's like, I said to her, you know, you shouldn't need to test your sugar this many times a day. And now I didn't, I didn't say it in a, a rude way, like, oh, this is a problem. I also did it, you know, she was also very nervous and it's like, oh my God, like it's overwhelming, right? Like I've got to do this many finger sticks and this many injections. And so part of it was me trying to say like, let's start with what insurance will cover. And if you find that you're needing to test more than that, then there's a process to get them to cover more, but it's not like an immediate thing that can happen. Mm -hmm. And part of it was kind of trying to reassure her that it's like, hey, you're not going to have to be sticking yourself every two hours indefinitely. Like you might feel like you need to do that now to get really tight control. And the reality is like, yeah, we are like my son's on Omnipod and, and Dexcom and it's like, we still have a prescription that says eight to 10 times a day, but I'm not sticking his finger eight to 10 times a day, but like everyone, I like to hoard supplies. And I mean, that, that poses a bigger question of like, well, what are the ramifications of that on the healthcare system at large? Like, you know, certain people are like, the idea is that 
you know, there's someone at that insurance company whose job is for it to be profitable. And it's like, you know, giving like people getting more supplies than they need. Is that somehow taking away from people that aren't, you know, not really because we don't have socialized medicine, but. Are you saying, Valerie, that if I worked at that hospital or somebody like me with the understanding that I have at my level, my job would not allow me to take as good of care of somebody as I even would know how to do? In some ways, yeah, there there are constraints within the healthcare system that come down to billing like that with the insurance, with the outpatient stuff, for example. I mean, everyone that's like a diabetic or a parent of a diabetic kind of knows that with insurance, you're restricted to what's on your formulary unless you go through a process to try to get prior authorization. And so it's kind of that same concept. It's like, well, there's certain protocols and policies in place, like like with the nurse and with the order. So say you are type one and you have your orders in the computer for, you know, your insulin and you get your meal tray. And it's like, okay, you know, the nurse has this order to give you four units. And you're like, well, I would normally take six units to cover this. She can't just give you six units. Right. Like she has to give what's ordered or she has to try to call and get that order changed, which is unless there's policies in place to let them do. I mean, there's not most hospital, most health systems don't have that. So that's where you're stuck with like, go ask the doctor. And then even in your situation, I might have to go ask the pharmacist. And then those people are busy with a thousand other things and just getting to this like idea of like changing my dose by two units, which seems so important to me and is important to me. It's not important in the grand scheme of things in this ecosystem that I'm now in because I've gone to the hospital. Oh, yeah, not at all. I mean, there would be providers who would be annoyed that you would call them about that. And that's like, really, like, and they're just going to say no to to try to teach you a lesson of like, don't call me about stupid stuff like this anymore. Because if that person's sugar goes up to 250 after this meal, when normally at home, they never get over 150, like, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It matters to you as an individual. It matters to me as a parent to type one, but like it doesn't matter as far as like the clinical outcome of that patient's hospital stay. So I only got Arden the test for the gallbladder because I had the nerve to stand up to the male nurse, push him back, force him to the doctor, force the doctor into the room, remake my concerns to the doctor. And I reached a doctor who was older and seemed more reasonable and heard what I said and agreed with me. So the test happened. But if I don't do all of that, eventually we would have got kicked out of that hospital. If I just stood there, waited for somebody to help me, somebody would have handed me paperwork and told me to leave. I think I, yeah, yeah, yeah. potentially, or right. you would have been there like during shift change and then someone knew had <laughs> a different <laughs> attitude. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it sounds like it. you definitely, my biggest lesson, like, is you have to advocate for yourself. And I mean, that's in all aspects of healthcare, right? Like if you have a lump or you have a funny mole or whatever, like you can tell your primary care about it. And they're like, well, you need to follow up with a dermatologist or you need to follow up with, you know, whatever specialist. You have to do that. Like no one's going to call and make that appointment for you. But people, I think, don't realize that because you kind of think, well, they're there to help me. It's like, mm-hmm. they're there to do their job. And sometimes that's make a referral. And whether you yeah. follow up on that referral or not, that's up to you. So it's kind of the same coming into the hospital. It's like, if you think, oh, everyone here is going to now manage my diabetes for me. It's like, well, they're going to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're going to try not to make it worse. Yeah. Hospital equals try not to let me die. 
Right. Yes. And yeah. and even like I had a surgery on my toe recently. It didn't even happen in a hospital. It happened in an office building. It, you know, like I was put under in a place that could have been an insurance company. Seriously. It, you know, like you yes. go into you go into an office building and they have a surgical suite and that's that. Yeah. OK, I get it. But does, uh, and I think everybody listening gets it. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge on this. Just for fun. Tell everybody where you're at right now doing this in the hospital. <laughs> Are you at least on a break or are you stealing? In a conference room. Yes, I took my lunch break to, okay. <laughs> to do this. And it's Friday and it's a holiday. So, you know, what happens in the hospital on days like today is that everyone's like getting discharged. Actually, they tried to discharge everyone yesterday so that because of the long weekend. Would be low for, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Okay. Uh, I know we're calling you Valerie. So I'll say, Valerie, thank you very much for doing this. I really do appreciate your time. Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by AG1. Drink AG1.com slash juicebox. Head there now to learn more about AG1. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, no sugar added, no artificial sweeteners. And when you make your first order with my link, you're going to get AG1 and a welcome kit that includes a shaker, scoop, and canister. You're also going to get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D with that first order at drinkag1.com slash juicebox. A huge thanks to U.S. Med for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox podcast. Don't forget, usmed.com slash juicebox. This is where we get our diabetes supplies from. You can as well. Use the link or call 888-721-1514. Use the link or call the number, get your free benefits check so that you can start getting your diabetes supplies the way we do from U.S. Med. If you're looking for community around type 1 diabetes, check out the Juicebox Podcast private Facebook group, Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes. But everybody is welcome. Type 1, type 2, gestational, loved ones, it doesn't matter to me. If you're impacted by diabetes and you're looking for support, comfort, or community, check out Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes on Facebook. If you're not already subscribed or following in your favorite audio app, please take the time now to do that. It really helps the show. And get those automatic downloads set up so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast.